Hi, John. How are you? I am well. How are you doing? I am very well, too. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. We still have a few minutes, so um, you can still relax. And <laughs> But in the meantime, <laughs> I'll put up the link. Uh, you can, um, if you would like, you can try to see if you can click on it. The, the presentation is so pretty. It's so beautiful. <laughs> okay, let me see. Oh, okay. There. Yeah, okay. Perfect. Great. Yeah, in the meantime, I'm going to share on Twitter about the start. And um, yeah, I hope you're enjoying your Friday. Happy Friday. <laughs> well, the, the weather here is beautiful in Rochester, so it's nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here too. It was chilly the last days, but today it's nicer. Yeah. The fall is the best season, right, here in New York since I moved to Yeah, especially in upstate New York. The, uh, the fall, I think, is, is really nice. Um, yeah, I agree. <clears throat> the, um, in Portugal, the fall, and then Germany, where I grew up. I'm originally from Portugal, and I grew up in Germany most of the time. The fall is horrible. It's just rain and clouds and gray and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah especially november is horrible like it's really mm. hard <laughs> well in portugal september is still fine you have the wine grape season so if you go out to the winery so you can you can you know see the grape getting picked and stuff like that that's nice mm. and figs and so on but but after that just rain <laughs> have you have you spent any time in brazil no i haven't i have actually further away family from brazil but i've never been no where did you go in brazil like, uh well i was i started in brasilia but we we covered about 1200 kilometers so we were we were all kind of in central brazil but um i had not realized how um prevalent Portuguese is. <laughs> and in fact, how, um, if I had done a little research on this, perhaps I would have figured that out. But, you know, I was with colleagues, so so that was fine. But um, I think the number of places I, I went um, and visited that um, people only spoke spoke Portuguese was, was surprising to me. Uh, so I, I just didn't realize that that was... Um, the dominant language there so in, in such a large area that was yeah it's um you know it was well it's not like it was taken over but it was then the first colony that became independent without any violence because it was the son of the king it kind of was rebellious and then just declared i don't want to be ruled by my father anymore and then it was the father didn't want to kill the son mm. if that's true i don't know <laughs> history is always just written by 
by the people that win. So if that's totally true, I'm not sure, but that's the story, I think, as far as I know. So, well, yeah, and they became close. independent, but slavery was only abolished very late, was the last of the ex-Portuguese regions that um, abolished slavery. Like, they were very, yeah, they were very stuck on that. But um, other than that, I think it's a beautiful country. It's just right now the political. Yeah, yeah, it's very, <laughs> it was good to do field work there before the elections. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's such a variety and huge country and variety of people with different ethnic backgrounds and um, religious backgrounds. It's um, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's supposed to be beautiful. My mom went a few times, but I don't know. Then. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. The people were great, and it was. Um... It was good, good for my work, and it was uh, it was a great trip. Did you ever go for a carnival? Season? No, no, no. I haven't gone for for any kind of touristy things. But um, I was definitely an accidental tourist in, in many ways, just visiting diff different areas. But uh, like I said, we covered a, a kind of a, a, a large area in central Brazil. But yeah, there's there's plenty of places we didn't see. Yeah. Yeah. have to go back yeah for sure and you went also yeah you went to all kinds of places but where did where did you go again in africa i was the... in namibia um in in july and um yeah i've done a lot of work in south africa and um zimbabwe botswana uh, but this most recent trip was in namibia oh it's also supposed to be very beautiful yeah yeah it is so um you know the the namibian geology has a lot of similarities with that of brazil because the uh, you know once the oceans were uh, um before the uh, the present day atlantic um formed they were adjoined so uh, that's that's why we have these similarities in geology i don't know if you it's a long time ago but that I heard this, but I wasn't sure if I really heard this right or not, that the, um, the Nile is basically how it's currently right now, that it's kind of the the climate is feeding the Amazon from the Nile, basically. Is that true? But now with climate change, it could get kind of reversed and there will be more rainfall again in some parts of Africa, but not so much in South America again, but because of the current changes. I'm not sure if it's really true. I think I heard it's already. Yeah, it's, 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 it's actually, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because it, it there are many, many variables involved. Um, the, the, and and you really need to get down to the level of specificity of a different of, of a specific area because some areas will be expected to have more rainfall and some areas will be expected to have less but all of this is predicated on on predictions on what's going to happen to ocean 
currents and, and temperature at that time. And if those change, then many of those subsequent predictions are are somewhat questionable because they will affect the kind of latitudinal temperature gradients. So, you know, I'm I'm reluctant to, to talk about these things without a, a particular model in front of me uh, to talk about the, spe the specific uh, predictions of the, those models and, and um, you know, what could actually happen. So I think we have to be careful about generalities like that, but um, there are some models that do you know, predict some things like that you're that you are talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah, I imagine that it was oversimplified. Um, yeah. We are almost. We can almost start. Um, people will start coming in. <coughs> I'm sorry. I got a little bit sick overnight. I don't know, um, but. <laughs> Um, uh, people will, will continue coming in, but we can, we can start slowly with introduction in a minute and, um, with interview questions and then, then we'll go from there. Hey everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, feel free to share, uh, the room, uh, with people you think that might be interested in this topic. Um, the presentation is pinned on top of the room and uh, we're going to start oh actually now it's already time um yeah so welcome everyone to science society and of course a special welcome to uh professor john Tarduno here and um before we start um, going into the topic, um, let me give you an introduction about John uh, so you get to know him a little bit better. Um, so uh, Professor uh, Tarduno, he's uh, um, at the University of Rochester and uh, he received his Bachelor in Geophysics from Leigh University and his master's and PhD in geophysics at Stanford University. He was um, a joint uh, oceanographic institutions fellow at Stanford and NSF postdoctoral fellow at the ETH Zurich. And um, then he was an assistant research geophysicist with Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And then he joined in 1993 uh, the University of Rochester. And there he served um, as a chair of Earth and Environmental Sciences. Um, and he was named the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor. And since 2019, he um, has served as the Dean of Research of Arts, Sciences and Engineering. Uh, Professor Terduno founded the Rochester Paleomagnetism Laboratory where he and his group um, developed methods to recover past field data from uh, single crystals. And his group uses ultra-sensitive magnetometers to read uh, this magnetic history. He sailed on many uh, ocean uh, drilling cruises and um, he uh, did um, he conducted a lot of field work 
also with students in India, Lesotho, Swaziland, uh, South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, and uh, led um, expeditions in the Sahara, and uh, even 10 to the high Canadian Arctic. He has over 100 of publications in very high impact journals. And um, he also received a lot of um, prestigious awards. Um, and uh, just to mention like a couple of them, he was named the, uh, in 2006 the Guggenheim Fellow. And um, he uh, was awarded the prize medal of the Royal Astronomical Society uh, for his achievement in detecting the absolute motion of hotspots, overturning the notion that they are fixed points over which the tectonic plate move. Um, this opened the way to new insights into mental convection. And in 2017, he received the EGU Petrus Peregrinos Medal for his seminal studies on the evolution of the Earth's magnetic field. And one of his articles um, had like over 800,000 reads um, that I posted it in the chat, this article. And um, he has been also featured in recent BBC Science Channel documentaries on the subject. So uh, it's such an honor having you here, uh, Professor. And um, we are really, really uh, happy that you took the time out of your business schedule to come here and make this beautiful presentation. But before we start, if that's okay, we usually ask a couple of interview questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. Great. Thanks. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, how, if you can remember um, in your life, um, how did you end up choosing a path of becoming a scientist? Um, was it something you always wanted to do? Was it maybe a teacher, a class or a book that kind of uh, sparked your interest in, in going and choosing this life? Yeah, so I, I would say that Growing up, I always had an interest in, I think, things outdoors and natural science in general. Um, I can't say where that came from <laughs> because I think it, um, it's just something that always interested me. Um, but I think I had um, several um, very good science teachers, I, I think, in grade school, secondary school that um, that really uh, laid an important part of that foundation. But I think it wasn't really until um, college that I knew that I could combine um, many of the things that interests that I had, which I at that time considered to be more like hobbies, um, that I could actually think about doing that um, as, as a livelihood. So it was really, I think, in, in college uh, where I, I met a couple of um, professors who were deeply interested in uh, geophysics uh, that really um, kind of um, cemented that foundation. 
Um, yeah, that's um, interesting um, that you, yeah, that you don't, yeah, that you see basically that you went, yeah, with your curiosity and um, um, I think that's, that's, um, that's a wonderful life to spend, you know, for a wonderful way to spend your life, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, and how did you become interested in this field of research and I know that this um, work has been an ongoing path of yours. Like, yeah, is there maybe a story about how you began to be interested in this and, and to research it? Yeah, I, th I think um, I think one of the foundational moments for me, um, kind of going back before this actual um, topic that I'm going to uh, speak on um, really again was in my uh, bachelor studies um, and at that time I was was just learning about geophysics um, and I was attending sort of an informal seminar that some professors were having with graduate students and we were talking about these things very late into the night. And I was, you know, as a young person, I was kind of amazed that here we were talking about this completely basic research academic topic. And there were people who were much older than me. They had families and um, they obviously had other things to do. But this was so intrinsically interesting to them <laughs> that... <laughs> They were they were just there, and they were you know talking and arguing about these things late into the night, and I, and and that was fascinating to me that people would be able to kind of devote devote their lives to that kind of you know pursuit of knowledge. So I think what I've tried to do a lot in our research and and in um, many of the things that we do in in my group in my lab is is kind of building upon that experience is is we try to provide opportunities for discovery. I mean, I think discovery can take place in many different ways. It can take place when you're doing field work. It can take place when you're doing laboratory work. It can take place when you're writing a paper and, and you just haven't really thought about the results yet. And I think that's um, really important. Um, and much of what I'm going to talk about today really did start with a discovery um, uh, that we we had in our laboratory. Well, that's yeah, I enjoy those type of conversations that go on, you know, outside of the lab. Um, I was at the Marine Biological Laboratory um, for a few summers and one year round and the atmosphere is kind of like that there, you know, we have like late night lectures, but also like with wine and, and some food. Yep. Yeah, I think, uh, do you think that still, um, you know, that happens still a lot or is it kind of more like a comp, is it nowadays more like a regular job, like being in a company? Like, <laughs> I feel that switches a little bit. I think it, it it depends on where you are, and and I think that um, 
yeah, there are places perhaps that are more corporate-like, and I think those people are uh, unfortunate because they're missing out. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's really it's really up to people like myself and 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 inform research groups to kind of keep that alive and and to really kind of create um, this kind of feeling of, of both kind of local and and kind of larger communities, um, but really again, kind of um, making particularly students feel that they're part of the process and, you know, they can make discoveries as, as much as any uh, uh, experienced person. It, it's um, it just kind of gaining the, the, the skill set um, and just keeping the curiosity uh, channeled in, in sort of very productive ways. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, they they are lucky to have you as a professor, and uh, yeah, um, I agree that's really important um, because it is a different life than you know just a regular job. You don't really go home and you stop thinking about things. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, <laughs> yeah, so there has to be kind of a community, <laughs> making sure you know you're not the only one like. <laughs> Oh, but um, yeah, so uh, the presentation um, for everyone is pinned on top of the room so everyone can access it. And uh, yeah, um, the stage is yours. Thank you so much. Okay, great, thanks. Um, so the first slide is just one of, of introduction. And I, um, so we'll, we'll move past that um, uh, pretty quickly into the second slide. And really, the second slide uh, illustrates what my group has been working on, um, particularly focused on for the last 20 years. And, and what this shows is this balance between um, the sun, and this is not to scale, by the way. Uh, it's uh, a picture of the sun on the left and Earth and what we call the magnetosphere surrounding it, this, this cocoon that is created by Earth's magnetic field. So the point of this picture is really to emphasize that um, out in space today, we have a pressure balance. So we have particles that are constantly streaming from the sun and there's a balance between those and Earth's magnetic field. Um, Earth's magnetic field, we say, stands off those charged particles um, from reaching um, Earth's atmosphere in particular. Now, you um, may, uh, all of this is largely invisible to you, except that you may occasionally hear of times when you see uh, auroras, for example, at low latitudes. And what's happening there is there's a particular event that comes from the sun, something we call a coronal mass ejection, where there's a, a much larger mass that is thrown toward Earth. And at that point, we can actually charge up the magnetosphere and we can then see effects of this. But most often we don't see this effect at all because that um, point, that pressure balance, is very far from Earth. It's, it's something we measure in Earth radii. It's um, over 10 Earth radii from Earth. Um, but what we've been trying to do in, in our group is really trace that back in time. Um, was it always really so far from Earth or was it actually much closer? 
And the reason, one of the reasons we want to understand that is kind of shown in the next slide, uh, number three. And it goes to the larger question of why did Earth uh, retain its water? Uh, of course, we think about Earth as the, the water planet, but what would have happened if we didn't have a magnetic field? Um, and we'll return to this at, at the end of the presentation. The, the principal thing and the importance about the Earth's magnetic field is it really protects us from this, um, these charged particles, which can erode the atmosphere. If they were not present, if the Earth's magnetic field had not been present, it could erode the atmosphere. And once the atmosphere starts to be eroded, it can take away the water also. So uh, the real question is why did Earth retain its water and evolve as this habitable planet with sustained habitability that we, we know about it? And what role did the Earth's magnetic field play in that? So that's the general theme that we'll be, we'll be looking at. Um, the fourth slide gets a little bit more to the, the topic of our most recent publication and, and something uh, about the internal structure of the Earth. Now, I think um, many people may be aware that uh, the Earth um, is, has a core, um, this core, which can most easily be seen in the inner layer at the figure on the far left, is made of, of liquid iron. And that liquid iron is, is swirling around and convecting, and that's the source of the Earth's magnetic field. But within that liquid iron is actually another layer. So if we jump all the way to the right, um, the right one actually shows all the layers that we have today in the Earth. Um, I'm not talking about the uppermost uh, parts of the Earth, the, the Earth's crust and lithosphere, but we're going to go beneath that for uh, what's labeled an A. That's Earth's mantle, so that's solid rock. But then B is the start of the core, and that's the liquid, now when we say outer core. But within this outer core is a solid inner core. That's C and D. Um, and that actually has two different parts. They're both solid, but they have slightly different compositions to them. And what um, the figures show from left to right is this um, realization of the community that the earth did not always have a solid inner core, that that has actually grown through time. And um, what we're trying to do is to, determine some of the temporal characteristics of that. It started out with a small seed, like the one in the, in the center, and then it grew this, um, what we call outermost inner core. And, and, and when did that actually happen? Um, and, and how did it happen? Why did it happen? Those are the kinds of things that we're, we're interested in. And finally, um, the thing I want to um, remind you about here is that convection in the liquid core is needed to produce the magnetic field. So we have to have the uh, liquid iron twisting around. And when it does that, it twists around the magnetic field lines in the core. And that's really important for generating the magnetic field and sustaining the magnetic field. Now to do that, we have to have an energy source. The most typical energy source is that we remove heat from the core. 
we move from heat and we transfer it to the mantle. There can be some chemical processes that produce this separately, but that's one of the main uh, intervals, uh, ways of actually producing the magnetic field. The other way to do that is just purely by the actual crystallization of the inner core. When that iron actually starts to form this kind of solid form within the very center of the earth, that releases heat and, and we call, ca uh, say, causes buoyancy, and that can also produce the magnetic field. So it's actually very interesting that today, what's actually producing the Earth's magnetic field is mainly due to this crystallization of the solid inner core. But very early in Earth history, the Earth's magnetic field, uh, if it existed, had to be formed, had to be generated, its power source had to be formed by something else. And, and we'll get to that um, in a second. Now, um, number five basically just is a, is a very brief um, review of how we approach uh, the problem and, and particularly focusing on one um, aspect of our analyses. We kind of roam the globe looking for the best magnetic recorders because um, you can think about um, magnetic recorders, natural rock magnetic recorders are, are in rocks, but um, these rocks have different magnetic minerals and some of them are really good uh, magnetic recorders and some of them, or most of them, are really poor magnetic recorders. So what we have found is that certain crystals within rock, within those crystals and those crystals that are shown um, in A and B are only about a millimeter in size. Within those crystals, certain crystals have um, magnetic inclusions, and those are shown in C and D. And the scale bar, bar now there is 200 nanometers. So these are, are really tiny magnetic particles, and you'll see they're needle-like forms. Well, those needle-like forms turn out to be perfect magnetic recorders. That is, when they, they form, they can lock in a record of the Earth's magnetic field, and, and the important part is that they're not gonna change their magnetization. So we spend a lot of time trying to find those rocks uh, that have those crystals to be able to get good recordings of the Earth's magnetic field. And if we jump to number six, um, we've developed a whole series of techniques and, and equipment. Uh, this is currently the most sensitive, uh, we say three component um, magnetometer is something called a superconducting uh, quantum interference device magnetometer. It's operating at, at cryogenic temperatures. Um, and it enables us to measure these very small particles uh, with great accuracy. And um, this was developmental work in our laboratory together with industry. And we use things like CO2 lasers to heat the samples to be able to recover these uh, type of magnetizations that they hold. Okay, uh, number seven. We're going to run through um, the history, uh, in our view, of the Earth's magnetic field, starting back uh, from the oldest records, which we think are around 4.2 billion years old, all the way to present. Uh, so what the, the vertical axis shows is the strength of the Earth's magnetic field and time is running along the x-axis. So, um, and the present day field value is in the pink line, uh, together the blue field is the current range of the present day magnetic field. 
so the first takeaway of this is that we think that the Earth's magnetic field is really old, and and we think it actually is as nearly as old as as the Earth, at least the Earth after uh, we say the giant impact uh, that formed the Moon. Uh, as soon as the Earth cooled from that, probably a um, hundred million years or so, it's it's possible that we had a magnetic field uh, being generated. So. Um, what we think, though, is that um, that early magnetic field, if we just jump to the next next slide, was was generated probably by processes that aren't occurring today. There were probably some um, minerals that were exhaled or, or dissolved, you could just say, within the um, this very hot initial core of the Earth. And that core would have been present uh, when the moon formed. And um, that those materials kind of solidified, and that produced some energy to drive the Earth's magnetic field. But that kind of dissipated quite quickly within the first couple hundred million years. Um, and that's that kind of pink arrow that's kind of trending downward. But then the, the field intensity increased. And we think, uh, if we go to the next slide, that was probably the transition to um, a mantle and then hence the core being cooled by plate tectonics. So if we just jump to the, the next slide, number 10, today when we think about the Earth's surface, we have um, you know, roughly 12 uh, plates uh, that are covering the Earth's surface, separated by either um, ridges uh, that um, can form new ocean basins, uh, the red lines uh, in this plot, and subduction zones where oceanic plates are diving underneath continental plates. That process is actually really efficient of removing heat from the Earth, particularly for cooling the mantle. Now, if you go back to the, what I started with, that we have to have convection within the core, this, this liquid core, to generate a magnetic field, or one way to generate a magnetic field. We have convection when we can remove heat quickly from the core. If we, if we couldn't remove heat quickly from the core, we would just move it, remove heat by conduction, but that's not enough to twist these magnetic field lines within the core to generate Earth's magnetic field. So one way to actually ensure that you have convection is to remove heat from the mantle very quickly, and plate tectonics is really good at doing that. So we think that plate tectonics probably took over as a dominant source of cooling the mantle and hence cooling the core and powering the Earth's magnetic field uh, during this transition period of around 3.5, 3.4, 3.5 billion years ago. And uh, that's what's shown in the next slide again in, in number 11. Um, but let's just jump right to number 12 now. Now, what followed that transition, in our view, um, and I'll just note that um, uh, what's shown here is plotted. All the, the, the colored points are from our laboratory. Some of the ones that are in gray are from other laboratories. What, what followed after this transition to plate tectonics or plate tectonics kind of powering the Earth's magnetic field was a period over 2 billion years long where there were variations in the strength of the magnetic field, but it was continuously you know, becoming weaker and weaker. 
And we think the reason for this was the fact that this cooling and just removing heat from the core was becoming less and less efficient. That is the temperature contrast between the core and the mantle uh, was becoming less. It didn't happen overnight. It took 2 billion years, but it became less efficient as a mechanism for driving the magnetic field. And this is really where the discovery part comes in. If we just go to our next um, slide. Um, what is shown here in, um, if you can look at the, the purple, I think it's a hexagon there, you'll see a data point where the field is extremely low. It's actually 10 times weaker than the present Earth's magnetic field. This is almost at the point that the Earth's magnetic field completely collapsed. Um, this is something that was discovered by one of my graduate students. Uh, we had some suspicions about this, but we, we really didn't know that the Earth's magnetic field was that low at, at that period. And, and the really neat thing about it is that is a result that was just generated uh, by Richard Bono, who is now an uh, assistant professor at, at Florida State University. Um, Richard generated these data completely independent from another work, which I'll talk about uh, in the next slide, number 14. And, and this is a, the work of, of Peter Driscoll, who's now at, now at um, the Carnegie Institute. Now, time in his plot is going the other way. So uh, on the right-hand slide of uh, GA is billions of years ago. Um, so time of the recent is zero there on the right-hand scale. But I've highlighted in the pink uh, rectangle two of the key predictions. Now, um, Peter wasn't generating data. Uh, Peter was, um, was a, had a, a thermal model of the Earth and a geodynamo, a numerical model of the Earth. And he made a prediction. He made a prediction that right before the inner core started to form, the um, as I as I talked about, the energy would have been so less so low to generate the field that the field would be almost at the point of collapse. But then, as soon as the field started to, um, soon as the inner core started to grow, there would be new energy sources, so the intensity should jump up again. So those were his two key predictions. So the first prediction of this really low field was really something that Richard Bono um, uh, found uh, independently and reported on in 2019. And if we jump to our the next slide in 2015, um, this is the, our, the newest work from our lab from uh, my student Ting Hong Zhao. And what Ting Hong found was essentially data that is the second part uh, matching the prediction that Peter, uh, that Peter Driscoll did, uh, had, had made. And that is in the early Cambrian uh, period, there's a rapid recovery of, of the uh, Earth's field strength. So if we just jump to slide 16, um, that's the red, um, the red data um, square there. So we go from this extremely weak magnetic field where it's almost at the point of collapse and the field jumps up. Uh, that time interval is something less than 33 million years. That's a long time um, for you and I, but in geological terms, that's 
actually a short, short period of time. Um, we can ex expand upon that uh, in the next slide, number 17. And that just kind of shows a blow up of that area now where uh, since the time of Richard uh, Bono's work and this ultra low field that he re recorded in what we call the Edia Karen period, uh, there have been other um, studies by other groups. Those are the, the smaller data points uh, that have confirmed his values. And, and uh, the bottom slide basically shows our view of when the inner core formed, um, the red uh, line um, going along the bottom, and that we start to form the inner core, and then it grows in radius, uh, which is the y-axis in part C. So our current view is that the inner core of the Earth um, formed at around 550 million years ago. Because we know that, now we can actually put a date on, I mentioned that there was an innermost inner core. So the inner core actually has two parts to it. And we think that that transition occurred about 450 million years ago. And we think that that actually reflects a fundamental change in, the, in how plate tectonics was working at that time, because that plate tectonics is ultimately um, causes uh, or or what we say um, controls the ultimate heat that's coming out of the earth. So there was a change in how the mantle was actually releasing its heat at around 450 million years ago, and that caused a change in the structure of the innermost, um, between the innermost inner core and the outermost inner core. So uh, in the next slide, this just now brings us all to, to completion, and that is since this time interval, the Earth's magnetic field has been dominantly uh, powered by the growth of the inner core. So uh, the inner core has formed, and it uh, is now being is now powering the Earth's magnetic field. But that was not the case for all of Earth's history, or even most of Earth's history. So. Let's just jump to, to number 19, um, slide 19, and really kind of talk about some of the, I think the larger implications of all of this and, and part of what drives us uh, toward our research. And let's, let's kind of do this, I think, in an interesting way and think about kind of alternative Earths without a geodynamo origin and continuity that we're, we're talking about. Um, what's shown in the left is a picture of Earth and Mars, how they might, uh, these are cartoons, of course, how they might have looked at uh, 4.2 billion years ago. So they both have magnetic fields and they both have oceans. But obviously, um, the planets have evolved in different ways. Uh, Mars lost its ocean, but Earth retained its ocean. So um, there are two critical points um, and transitions in Earth history, in our view, that um, if not leading exactly to a Mars-like state, um, could have pushed Earth much closer to Mars than its uh, present day state. Uh, the first, which is, isn't really the, the topic of this talk, but I have touched on it, is this very earliest Earth, the Hidean to Paleoarchean. So, this is the 4.2 to 3.5 billion year period. Uh, solar winds would have been so intense then if we didn't have a magnetic field, we would have eroded Earth's atmosphere and, and, and we probably would have looked something much more like Mars. 
But the second one is this Ediacaran period and the ED and the inner core growth, because we might not have evolved like Mars, but if the Earth's magnetic field had not regenerated by the formation of the inner core, and I'd like to emphasize that, that point, because it's very exciting now that people are thinking about exoplanets and we're, we have this, we're in this great um, uh, point in, in history where we're making the first discoveries of exoplanets and everyone's interested in whether or not there are other planets that are habitable. So we, we need to understand Earth, of course, as that model. So it's not obvious that when you have an inner core that you're going to drive and, and inner core formation is automatically going to regenerate the magnetic field. If the chemical composition had been slightly different, if the, if the um, materials had been slightly different, we might not have regenerated the magnetic field and we might have gone into a very different state where without a magnetic field, the Earth's atmosphere would have been much more vulnerable to removal. So we would probably in 500 million years not have evolved to Mars, but we would have lost water and we would have um, been a much drier planet uh, than we are today. So I think that's it's uh, kind of interesting to put Earth evolution kind of in that history that um, the formation of the inner core really um, for Earth was an important, um, something very deeper in the Earth really had fundamental uh, consequences for the, um, the surface environment that, that we know today. Um, so finally, just in number 20, I, I'd just like to mention that um, I'm really just uh, representing a large group of collaborators. Um, and these are just some of the collaborators and some of my most recent studies, they're, they're not all listed here. Uh, and of course, we, we are funded by the National Science Foundation, who kind of enables us to do uh, many of the, uh, this work. Um, I've talked about a lot of technical things in a very general way here today, um, and my email address is there. Um, particularly if any students would like to talk about any, any of these things uh, in detail, uh, they should feel free to uh, send me an email. So, um, so that's the end of my, my formal presentation, and I'd be uh, happy to take any questions. Well, thank you so much, John, for this beautiful presentation and for explaining things in a way that even I can understand. Um, <laughs> so, um, Leah is asking, what is uh, the difference about the characteristics of the inner core on Earth um, that it doesn't like that it doesn't melt under the same conditions as the liquid layer around it. Right. So um, it, it has to do with with the, the pressure temperature characteristics of Earth. So the um, when when the iron actually starts to crystallize, it actually th there's a certain number of light elements in the core and there's there's incredible debate in the community, <laughs> interestingly enough, about what some of those light elements are. Surely there's oxygen, surely there's some um, uh, silica, uh, whether or not there's hydrogen or not, it's debated. Um, uh, uh, certainly some magnesium. Um, so what happens is when this material starts to crystallize, these lighter elements are exposed from the liquid. So now the liquid does actually have a different chemical composition from uh, the center of the 
um, the very center of the core itself. But it really is a pressure temperature um, uh, condition so that uh, the pressure and temperature characteristics of the overall core uh, become, um, you, you pass into a, a, we call phase regime where the solid phase is stable. Okay, so it's, it's really the pressure and temperature characteristics that are really defining where we have a, um, a solid phase being stable and versus a liquid phase being stable. Overall, the core had to cool to a temperature um, uh, low enough that that would start to happen. Okay, I hope, hope hopefully that's clear. Yeah, I think uh, that's interesting. And so what's, why didn't Mars come up with um, this field? Um, do, you, do we know exactly why? Um, do we know enough about Mars? We, we just have some ideas um, because because um, probably um, so so Mars doesn't have plate tectonics um, so it was not releasing heat at the rate um, that Earth was so cooling its mantle uh, fast enough or in a way that would kind of generate the the the, the uh, field but also the chemical composition of the core is quite different. Uh, there's much more sulfur, uh, we think, in the core of, of uh, Mars than there is in Earth. So uh, my guess is probably the sulfur is the main difference for this, that, that you can reach this, the, the solid phase within the Martian core, but um, the, those chemical characteristics are not enough to, to create the conditions to release enough heat to, to generate a magnetic field in Mars. Interesting. So the, the, the proximity to the sun doesn't contribute at all. Um, no, the, the proximity of the sun to the sun just has a, has a rough, uh, has a, well, it has a direct correlation on the composition. Uh, so, um, but uh, beyond that, it's really um, the intrinsic nature of how the planet was built. So um, Mars probably was built as a planet very different from, from Earth. Um, you know, our, our, our estimates right now is Mars may have actually consolidated as a, as a planet much earlier than, than um, the Earth did. So when we're talking about Mars, we're talking about five to 10 million year timescales for, for after the formation of the solar system. When we talk about Earth, probably like, you know, more than 30 million years. And, and, and Earth was being built by probably smaller planetesimals. So it, it had a longer and more protect, protracted uh, growth history. And that all played into um, the chemical composition that eventually formed its core. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, Joyce, do you have a question? Um, yeah, um, a couple thoughts. Um, and and I'm sorry if I may have missed part of it. So if you said something about this already, but Anyway, I'll just ask, um, do you think there are any implications for one of two things, either our future as far as climate or um, finding other planets that are uh, habitable in the solar system or actually beyond the solar system? Anyway, thanks, I'm done. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, I've touched on that a little bit, but not not as much as in terms of your f first question. So the the um, it does have some implications for the future of our planet, but um, 
there's going to be a grand competition here. I mean, we can we can talk about what's going to be the demise of our planet, and and I think um, I, I you know is the inner core. Um, maybe this is a good way to think about it. If there were no other variables um, involved, um, the inner core will continue to grow. Uh, at some point, in, in, the inner core is going to become so large that the um, the, the that portion of the core where the Earth's magnetic field is being generated becomes so small that the flow actually starts to break up into smaller um, smaller areas. And at that point, then the the actual potential to generate a global magnetic field becomes questionable. So then the magnetic shielding would essentially collapse, and then we could then have the full brunt of the um, the solar wind impacting the Earth, and then potentially removing the atmosphere and and the water. Um, however, that's probably going to be, um, and and this is where models will will, will uh, differ on this. Uh, you know, five hundred million to one point five billion years in the future. Um, but at that point, then we start thinking about other things that are going to happen in the solar system that are going to be equally or, or bad or worse, uh, because the sun is going to start to grow toward a red giant phase, and it's going to cause a runaway greenhouse on Earth, and, and um, the surface temperature is going to become un- uninhabitable. So um, there are interesting academic questions there, but there's other things uh, as well that go into Earth's his, his, uh, future. What, what I would say, and that's kind of touched on a little bit in the um, the link that I think uh, was posted, is the Earth's magnetic field is 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 really interesting um, right now, and it's decreasing in intensity. For example, and this has caused a great debate in the um, in the community about whether or not we're heading toward a reversal or not. Um, I won't. I won't go on record as saying that we're heading toward a reversal. I'll just say that the Earth's magnetic field is decreasing uh, very rapidly, and that does have some concerns for us, some societal concerns, if that continues, because it can affect satellite um, operations. And it could, you know, if it continues in the next 50 years, increase, let's say, um, uh, concerns about skin cancer, uh, because the Earth's magnetic field also, through its protection of the ozone, eventually. Uh, protects against uh, UV um, uh, light. So I think um, those types of connections are important. In terms of the exoplanet question, um, yeah, I think this is a prime consideration. I think everything that we've we've talked about bears on this, that you can think about the creation of a planet in a solar system in what we call a habitable zone. That's the zone where water is actually in, in the liquid phase. But that's not enough. I mean, you can create a planet there, but you have to find ways of keeping the water on the planet. So again, I would return to to what I talked about at the end. I, I think that's sort of general, I think, in all exoplanets. All exoplanets need to, that want to have habitable features as we view them. They have to survive this early phase. All stars, or sun-like stars, in their, when they're young, throw off a tremendous amount of particles. And when that happens, the, that has tremendous erosive 
capability of a early planetary atmosphere. So all planets need to survive that, and a magnetic field is a great way to do that. Uh, and then later on in their history, they need to find something in their internal dynamics to create and continue this uh, magnetic field, and, and the formation of an inner core is one great way to do that, obviously, from the Earth example. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like we're going to be very lucky if we have to worry about that because it'll yes. mean we made it for 500 million years <laughs> <laughs> yep yep okay thanks so much I'm sure. yeah um there were more questions just posted um the venus does not have a magnetic field and if that's true how can venus keep up the atmosphere yeah that's a, that's a great question so so Venus is, is our classic example of a planet without a magnetic field. So the question is, well, if magnetic fields are important, why does Venus have such a, a thick atmosphere? And, and the question there, of course, is, is not um, the preservation of a, an atmosphere or, or per se, it's the, it's the preservation of a habitable atmosphere, a habitable planet. Uh, Venus is, is, is hell. <laughs> Right, Venus has lost all its water, so Venus has this crushing uh, CO2 atmosphere. It has sulfuric acid clouds, and um, the reason for this is is it it hasn't uh, released its heat in sort of a normal Earth-like uh, fashion. It uh, releases it sort of in events. But for at least for the last 800 million years or so, it has lost all its water. And it, it lost all its water, um, probably uh, in part because it didn't have a magnetic field to, to actually prevent that from happening. So um, it is a good point that we're not talking about the preservation of atmospheres. We're talking about the preservation of water and habitable atmospheres by, by a um, magnetic field. And of course, when you're thinking about the removal of elements, the easiest thing to, to remove is going to be hydrogen. Uh, and, and it's really the breakdown of water and the removal of hydrogen uh, that is the start of that process uh, in removing uh, water. And, and you know, that, that's actually still happening today in Venus. We can actually record it by satellites. Um, the second part uh, is a little bit more nuanced. Um, and it's not just these parameters, but once you remove all the water from a planet and you're just left with CO2, there's actually something we call an adiabatic, um, that's a technical term, but there's, there's a process by which um, when you have CO2 at the very feather edge of your atmosphere, when you're actually removing some of that CO2, there's a, there's a relative cooling effect. So if, I, if we were to look at the feather edge of our atmosphere today, Okay, Earth's atmosphere is actually more vulnerable to loss uh, just by the basis of that temperature than Venus is. And that's because Venus has this CO2 atmosphere all the way up to that point. So, so there's interesting chemistry that happens once you remove all the water from an atmosphere, and in particularly when you're, when you're all that's left is CO2. That's really interesting. Um... 
I didn't know that there was basically CO2 only left. Like, do you think for, um, so for, for life, um, do you think at any point it was possible to have had um, life on Mars or any of the other planets um, without the magnetic field? Um, well, one could argue, I mean, Mars, ha Mars had a magnetic field early on. Um, so the question is, would, would you actually have enough conditions on someplace like Mars um, and long enough time that you would not have eroded away the atmosphere? And, and you know, it's, it's possible on a Mars-like planet that you could do that. Um, then you'd eventually remove all the water. So I don't think the sustainability of habitability bodes very well for long-lived life. Um, I do think it is possible, however, just to kind of probe your question, I think it's theoretically possible to have such a thick atmosphere to begin with that, you know, it takes time to erode it away and you could potentially have conditions suitable for the origin of life Uh, but then that life w might not survive. Oh, and um, Namanu, he asked if um, Aria Borealis, would it be affected if the magnetic field changes soon in the future? Um, yeah, so so the um what we think is 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 going to happen um there are some predictions and i believe those so so let me just back up for a second what, what's happening to the earth's magnetic field is the earth's magnetic field is decreasing in intensity that's the overall intensity of the magnetic field but it's not happening the same everywhere It's, it's actually decreasing more rapidly in an area called the uh, South Atlantic Anomaly. So this is broad area from South Africa over to Chile and it encompasses part of Brazil, where the Earth's magnetic field is much lower than, um, than uh, typical for uh, the field strength than that should be. So it's actually, um, and it has some spatial characteristics to it. Now, if that continues to weaken and, and continues to grow, um, Earth overall is more susceptible to um, having, uh, when there's very large events uh, from the sun, these coronal mass ejections impacting the Earth's magnetosphere. Now, what happens there is then there's a transfer of some of those particles. Um, they don't reach Earth's surface, but there's a transfer to some of, some of those particles to these the radiation belts that surround Earth. These are called the Van Allen uh, radiation belts. And then they can actually spark off uh, auroras. So I think that um, if the Earth's magnetic field continues to decrease, an, an argument could be made that you could have more frequent occurrences of auroras at lower latitudes. So um, I think that would be the main the main uh, connection. Oh, interesting. Yeah, thank you. Um, does anyone have um, any last questions? We have around five minutes left, and the hour is up. And uh, John probably has to get back mm -hmm. work and life. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, yeah, if anyone has any last questions, uh, please go ahead and ask them now. Um, so my question is also, what would the, the outcome, like what would change for the ocean and ocean currents? Would there also be, uh, maybe, would it be affected like for ocean life and currents? Because then that changes the climate probably also a lot. Or is it maybe, you know, climate change is way stronger effect and it won't really make a difference? Yeah, I think climate change is 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 kind of the larger is, is the larger effect in general. You know, anthropogenic climate change. Um, uh, you know, in, in, climate really doesn't come into this until you get to the really drastic uh, situations where you're you know removing a large part of an atmosphere or something like that. Um, uh, kind of on the more general cases, I think climate. Um, uh, really isn't affected. I mean, there are still some arguments in the in the discipline about whether or not um, the magnetic shielding of cosmic rays could have some local effects uh, on climate, um, but it's it's there's nothing of the scale of of the larger signal of anthropogenic climate change. Yeah, and I don't know if you like the birds and so on are theorized to use the magnetic field for orientation? Well, that's that's actually another question and a fascinating one. And and yeah, so if we were ever to go to the case where the Earth's magnetic field were to, to really continue to move toward reversal, and again, not something we need to worry about because if that were to happen, that would be, um, you know, probably uh, at least a thousand years into the future, maybe maybe 1500 uh, years into the future. I think the field might start to get very unusual um, around 500 million years. If, if there were, let's say, a linear continuation of the trend that's happening and over the last you know, 200 years, which is a, an unreasonable extrapolation, but nonetheless, for, for fun, we could talk about that. But I think that um, it is an interesting uh, case because it, there does seem to be strong evidence that certain animals do use the Earth's magnetic field for navigation. However, I think for many of these groups, it's, it's also clear that they use multiple um, uh, um, sensing organisms to actually do this, this, this uh, process. So I don't think, um, you know, why there might be local effects, I don't think there's going to be mass extinctions that would, would result for this because like birds, they, they clearly have multiple sensors and they're sensing um, different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see <laughs> um, uh, for, for this type of navigation. Interesting. And by then we managed to kill all of them probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except yeah if there's still a zoo so they don't have to navigate uh yeah um does anyone have any last questions um please feel free to um to post them so i know you um kind of also changed the notion of tectonic plates movements and so on so so in practicality 
how do you get the data? So you have different um, spots around the world where you continuously um, get still data from to update your model. Like, um, is that like how large is the network basically to make like these type, you know, to get this type of data that you can make like a model out of it? Yeah, so so there are two different th two different things. There is one is that there's there's what we call a paleomagnetic database. So there there's data from rocks all over the world that we can continue to contribute to. Um, and right now, as I said, we're focusing on the strength in the magnetic field. But um, our contributions have mainly been from the oceans. I mean, one one of the problems in those so-called global databases is that they're almost entirely from the continents because it's really hard to get data from the oceans. So uh, that was some of the work that we did with the ocean drilling program, and particularly in the Pacific, um, because the Pacific plate, the huge Pacific plate is a, is a key player there. So uh, we, we led some expeditions drilling um, seamounts uh, on the Pacific plate, and, and we drilled uh, through those, and we examined other data that had been collected from previous missions um, to get paleomagnetic data to make conclusions on um, really um, not only what the plate was doing, but also making inferences on what the mantle was doing. And, and kind of our view that, that I think changed a lot of people's mind was that um, it's not just all the plates that are moving, but the mantle is moving. And sometimes the mantle can move as fast as the plates. So, and, and not necessarily in the same direction. So I think that, um, you know, the earth, and the mantle is convecting. The Earth is a huge convecting system. And, um, you know, actually taking an, into consideration all parts of that system is really important in figuring out, you know, how, how the Earth works. Can I, um, uh, that's really interesting. And um, can I make a type of sci-fi, since we are on Clubhouse and, you know, not everything has to be, um uh formal so yeah. will there ever be a tunnel that goes really deep maybe deep enough to get some um you know there's this sci-fi movie where there's a tunnel between i think the us and australia uh, that you're there in like half an hour so <laughs> people work like in australia and live in the us or something like that i i forgot exactly it's a while ago like it's probably not possible, right? And it would probably yeah. collapse and, and get way too hot. Like, how hot would it get? When uh, it, it, it gets really hot really pretty quickly. So let me let me put this in perspective to you. I talked about the mantle. Um, so the ocean drilling project has been trying for 50 years to drill in the ocean basins through the oceanic crust. That's the uppermost part of this uppermost layer called the lithosphere to get into the mantle because that's the easiest place to reach it. Now it turns out that there are other places where the mantle is on the surface of Earth, but they're that they're all special because there's some kind of um, unusual tectonics and some type of deformation that's brought these rocks that from these incredible depths to the surface. What people really want to do is look at like kind of in situ material uh, to, to see what that mantle really is like. So they would like to drill through the entire crust uh, to get to it. Um, we tried for 50 years and we haven't been able to do it. 
So, so drilling through the oceanic crust is really, really hard. And that's, um, and it gets hot and it, and, and there's all sorts of technical problems that actually there are voids <laughs> that are terrible if you're trying to drill. Uh, it's fractured uh, and it's, um, so if we could actually drill into the mantle, I'd be happy. <laughs> but, I think uh, the science fiction movies are are that they're science fiction. They're cool and they're interesting, but they're they're very far from from science in in that aspect. Um, you know, I do think we we will eventually. I mean, there there are large scientific groups uh, out in Japan and the U.S. who want to do this, uh, but it's still a major technical uh, challenge to get just to the very top of the mantle. Wow, interesting. I didn't know. So it's extra hard the surface, or is it the yeah. pressure and temperature, pressure, but really structure also. So okay. it's yeah. Well, interesting. So um, the, yeah, I, I could fantasize way more going into <laughs> <laughs> on how to get into the earth and what's under there. I had one more question, you know, there's a lot of talk of having another ocean under, you know, under the surface. Is that something we really know? Like, did we manage to really detect it? Or is it a theory that we have a whole other ocean under the ocean, basically, or under the surface? I, I don't, we don't really have another ocean in the sense that you would think necessarily of an ocean. Um, you know, we have many, many different types of reservoirs on land, uh, and there are, undoubtedly there are undiscovered reservoirs on land, probably, uh, where there is a sort of untapped uh, deeper water, but not, not ocean scales. Uh, there, there could be some large water uh, bodies, but not anything the size of an ocean. Now, there will, sometimes people will talk about this and say, well, there is this ocean in the mantle, and particularly this ocean in the deep mantle. Well, what they're talking about there is that there is water trapped in minerals. And if you could release all that water, you would get some fraction of an ocean. And, and we don't actually know those numbers, but that is actually certainly true. It, you know, there's, there's a significant amount of water that is trapped in minerals in the mantle and, and maybe even the deepest mantle. And, um, and, and that's part of our water budget too from the entire planet. Um, but there's great debate in the community as to how much water that is. Oh, that's interesting. And would it be salty also since it's trapped in minerals or is it just different, you know, just magnesium and stuff like that? Well, it definitely would be, it would be, it would have many minerals in it because it's actually bound within those, those minerals. Yeah. So it would be, uh, it wouldn't be fresh water. It wouldn't be. Okay. So we just, let's just leave it there. We have enough salt water. So <laughs> yeah. Eating away at the beach and stuff. So maybe we should just keep it there. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. This is such a wonderful discussion. I could go on and on talking about my curiosity um but um i would like to you know let you go on with your day and your friday so it was really an honor having you here and you're always invited back um 
Um, and um, this was such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it too. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Well. Well. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me, and I and I did enjoy it. And 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 thank you again. Wonderful. And um, yeah, thank you everyone for coming, for asking questions in the chat, and and participating, being here. If you like discussions like this, uh, follow the club. We will have um, uh, next week um, more discussions like this. Uh, check out um, the club website or the schedule. And um, yeah, I hope to hear you all back soon. And thank you, John. It was such a pleasure. Um, enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Okay, you also. Bye. Bye. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.